The word of the day is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 through 23. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in the bodily lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature not with a circumcision done by the hands of men but with the circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle and notions. He has lost connection with the head with whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Amen. What is the meaning of life? It's really the ultimate question. There have been books written about it, there are movies about it, there are songs about it, there are conferences about it. It's a billion-dollar industry that people are trying to discover what's the meaning of life. Because everybody wants to live lives of purpose. We want to live lives that are fulfilling and satisfying, and we want to spend our time looking for ways that we can achieve significance, that we can enjoy peace and love, fulfillment, We set our own value and our own worth on the goals that we achieve for ourselves. That's how we define who we are. And yet, when we achieve those goals, we discover that we still feel empty. And so then we set another goal and another goal. And we chase after pursuits in our careers, 
and in our personal lives, after more money, after relationships, seeking satisfaction, seeking fulfillment through all different ways, through entertainment, through doing good things. I had read an interview with an athlete once, and he had reached the height of his success in his field. And the reporter asked him, they said, what do you wish someone would have told you before you started playing your sport? And he replied, I wish that someone would have told me that when you reach the top, there's nothing there. Many goals reveal their emptiness only after years have been wasted in their pursuit. Now, we've been talking since January about this year, 2017, being a year of impact. Because everybody wants to have an impact on those around them. Everybody wants to leave some sort of legacy. We want to know that there is purpose and meaning beyond the mundane day-to-day stuff that we do. And we're currently in a series called Rethinking Life. Because if we want to have a positive impact, we have to rethink how we spend our time. We need to rethink our priorities. And we need to rethink the opportunities that God puts before us. And we need to rethink the meaning of life. In our text this morning, Paul does just that. He reminds the Colossians about the meaning of life. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete. Underline that word, complete. You are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. In other words, Jesus is God. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good man doing good things. Jesus is God in the flesh. And because of the fullness of God in Christ, salvation cannot be found in any other place but in Jesus Christ. God is found in Jesus alone. People search for God in all different places. But he is found in Jesus Christ alone. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. John continues in that same chapter, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And Paul says, because of your union With Jesus, you are complete. You want to change your life? You want to live a life that's satisfying and fulfilling? It's in Jesus. In Jesus, you're complete. 
As believers, we like nothing outside of Christ. In him, we have all we need for salvation and for right living. To be complete in Christ means that there's nothing lacking in our relationship with God. God pours his love into us. He pours his power into believers, giving them fullness for this life and preparing us for life in eternity. We don't need to look anywhere else. Jesus is our source for knowledge. Jesus is our source of power to walk the Christian walk. Jesus holds the answers for the meaning of life because he is life. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. You see, within every person is a God-shaped space, a space that only God can fill. If you look around, people are searching for ways to fill that space. They want to be complete by filling that space with things other than God. It may be through their career. It may be through relationships. It may be through love. It may be through the material things, ownership of things. You know, you complete me makes for a great romantic movie line. But the truth is, only Jesus can make you whole. Only Jesus can complete you and give your life meaning. Only Jesus can complete you and give your life purpose. Only Jesus gives you value. Every one of you, everyone out there was made in the image of God. Their value comes from him. Not from what they do. Not for the things they have. We're complete in Christ. How? How are we made complete? Verse 11 says, When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. You see, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of a covenant with God. It started with Abraham and his descendants in Genesis chapter 17. It was meant to be symbolic of the cutting off of the old sinful life and then dedicating your life to God. But here in the New Testament, circumcision was being used as a symbol of privilege. It was a reminder of their heritage and their identity and their value before God. And Paul's telling the Colossians, you don't need that outward sign anymore because God has circumcised your heart. And that's what circumcision was meant to be. Circumcision was supposed to be a heart matter, not a man's physical doing. Listen to Ezekiel 44, 7. You have brought uncircumcised foreigners into my sanctuary, people who have no heart for God. In Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants 
so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. The outward circumcision is done by man. The circumcision of our hearts is done by God alone. When we come to Jesus, when we trust in him for our forgiveness and our salvation, he casts off our old sinful life. He circumcises our heart. Remember, you're a new person. When you come to Jesus, you're not the old person anymore. 2 Corinthians 5.17 This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. How's that possible? How does it even happen? Paul continues to speak to the Colossians in verse 13. He says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. If I told you that I was going to the cemetery this afternoon to preach a sermon for the dead, you'd think I was crazy. The dead can't hear you. The dead can't do anything. Why would you go to a cemetery to preach to dead people? Only the dead, uh, only God can bring the dead back to life. Before God intervened in your life, you were dead. Every one of us was spiritually dead before God stepped in. When we preach out there God's words and they look at us like we have three heads, it's because they're spiritually dead. God hasn't intervened for them yet. That, does that mean we don't say it? No, no, that doesn't mean that. What I'm saying is that this coming alive, we don't do it ourselves. You did not come to Jesus on your own. It was the work of God. It was his power, it was his Holy Spirit that drew you in. The choice was yours, but he had to reveal himself to you first. You see, becoming a Christian, we like to think about it, oh, I'm just going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do good things now. It's just a matter of deciding to have a positive outlook. But becoming a Christian is not about, it's, it's not a self-improvement project. We are spiritually dead. We can do nothing to change that, just like the bodies in the graveyard. Only God can bring life from death. Only God brings us from spiritual death to eternal life. And he does it through Jesus, the meaning of life. Well, pastor, well, how do you know if I'm spiritually dead or if I'm spiritually alive? How do I know the difference? My heart is beating. There's air in my lungs, so I'm alive, right? Well, if you're spiritually alive, the things of God 
excites you. If you're spiritually alive, you hunger to learn more about God through his word. If you're spiritually alive in Christ, then you struggle with sins now that before you didn't even think twice about. And when you're spiritually alive, you are so in love with Jesus that there's a fire and a passion burning in your soul that draws you to your knees when you think about what Jesus did for you. As you experience that forgiveness of your sins, you cannot be helped but to fall down. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. That means you're spiritually alive. Paul continues, He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. Well, but I haven't done such bad things. I've done a few maybe bad things, but maybe, you know, not, oh, Mary over there? Wow, she did some nasty stuff. Yeah, but I'm not as bad as her. So, you know, God, you know, it's okay. You know, I, I know that you didn't need to forgive me that much. Well, Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you just, the only thing you've ever done wrong is stolen a pencil from school when you were five years old. A sin is a sin is a sin is a sin. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus. We're sinners. We're born with a sinful nature. But God loved us so much that he became our justifier. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie The Shack. Jay and I had watched that the other night. And there's one scene in there and the main character is kind of arguing with the God character. Well, This person was horrible. He should go to hell for what he did. And the God character says, okay, well, if it's so easy to be the judge of who should go to heaven and who should go to hell, I will let you be the judge. And he brings before this man his two children. And he says to him, okay, you decide. You're the judge now. You decide who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. And the man stands. He says, I can't do it. I can't do it. No, you must decide. You cannot not choose. You must choose which of your two children before you. Which one are you sending to heaven? Which one are you sending to hell? And the man breaks down and he falls down. He says, no, take me. Take me instead for the punishment that you want to put on them. And God looks at him and he says, now you understand. Now you understand. God took our punishment. He is our justifier in Jesus Christ. 
He doesn't condemn us to hell. He came to save us from hell. He came to give us life. He's just and he is righteous. He is God. If he wasn't just and he wasn't righteous, he wouldn't be God. But God is also love. So he doesn't leave us in our spiritually dead condition. He intervenes to bring us to life. He intervenes to forgive our sins, to cancel the debt of the charges against us. He nailed it to the cross. When you trust in Jesus and you trust in his death and resurrection, when you make him Savior and Lord, Payment for your sins is paid in full. But sometimes we still struggle. Even after we've trusted Jesus for salvation. Even after we've trusted in Jesus for forgiveness. We struggle to forgive ourselves. We still sit in the guilt And we still sit in the shame. Church, God is not in the shaming business. God is in the redeeming business. The shame you feel, the guilt that you still hold on to, is the work of Satan. If you've trusted Jesus, if you've repented, and you've been forgiven, you need to let go of the guilt. Let go of the shame. Because Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. There is no condemnation for you. You see, God took what was supposed to be Satan's greatest victory with Jesus' death on the cross. And he took it and he made it Satan's greatest defeat. When Christ gave his life for us, Satan and the evil forces of the world were stripped of their power over us. They can no longer accuse us because Jesus has paid our debt. They can no longer hold us captive through the fear of death. Because Jesus won victory over death. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead Follow the Spirit. In Christ you are forgiven. In Christ you are free. 
in Christ, you're allowed to live by the spirit that dwells within you. Stop letting your past ruin your present. God has removed it, placing it as far as the east is from the west. Let go of the shame that Satan uses to accuse you. Stand firm in your belief of God. Stand firm in Jesus' forgiveness of your sins. Don't let Satan continue to condemn you. Because he will. And that's why Paul continues in verse 16. Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days, or new moon ceremonies, or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Remember, the Colossians were dealing with false teachers that were teaching a false gospel message. The people in Colossae, they were being told, well, Jesus is good, but you need Jesus and this. Jesus is not sufficient. Jesus is not enough for you. You are not spiritually mature if you have just Jesus. So you must do this and this and this. But these rituals were from the Old Testament. They were the dietary laws and restrictions. They were observance of religious holidays and Sabbaths, and they were rituals that were meant to keep you connected to God. But the believers, the people in Colossae that were following Christ, they were already connected with God through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. They didn't need these rituals to accomplish what was done through Jesus. And so the unbelievers were ridiculing them for their unspiritual behaviors. Now, rituals have the potential to take our minds and our focus off of Jesus. Rituals get us out of sync with the Father because we focus on our doing rather than his doing. That's why Paul calls them shadows of the reality. Because the reality is Jesus. The reality is the Holy Spirit within us. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have that personal relationship with God. We don't need the rituals to connect us to him. When we get so hung up on rituals and the way that things should be done, we completely lose sight of what God wants to do. Because rituals put us at the center and push God out to the side. He continues in verse 20. He says, you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world? Such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. Oftentimes when rituals are lifted up as important in the church, so is legalism, which is why Paul mentions it here. 
And the legalism that we're talking about here refers to those man-made rules and restrictions that we make as a requirement for being spiritual. It's a list of do's and don'ts that are meant to regulate our behavior on the outside so that we can convince ourselves that we're spiritual on the inside. It's prominent in most religions, especially in the Christian church. But Jesus and the apostles, they opposed it. Sometimes legalism takes the form of don't drink, don't smoke, don't play cards, don't dance, don't go to the movies. Don't listen to any music unless it's hymns. Don't get a tattoo. Don't dye your hair pink. And so on, and so on, and so on. Now, on one level, legalism takes a serious look at morality and aims at preventing us from sinning. It's a good thing. But the problem is that it goes beyond God's word. For example, legalism would say that since X is sinful, then it must be spiritual to not do activities that might lead to X. For example, well, drunkenness is a sin, so we must prohibit drinking alcohol at all times and not enter places where people get drunk. Or because sexual immorality is a sin... We must abstain from all books, all movies that might have any sexual innuendo. A recent example would be the Harry Potter books several years ago that came out. Oh, there's wizardry in those books. They're fiction, but we don't want to have anything to do with witchcraft and wizardry. Yes, yes, that is very true. That is God's word. Do any of you did any of you ever want to be the good fairy because you read nursery rhymes when you were a kid? No. You see, do you see where legalism can take us down a, a trail that puts us as the judge, that puts us in God's seat. We do not want to be in that place. We do not want to put rules out there that God never said. We don't want to usurp his authority. Because legalism will put us in the judgment seat. And then it creates a shadow of spirituality. See, legalism allows us to look at what we do or don't do for our completeness and for our wholeness. But we already know that we can only find that through Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can do in ourselves to be complete or whole. Only what Jesus has already done on the cross. Listen to the harsh words that Jesus had for the Pharisees who were focused on their list of do's and don'ts and their outward appearance of spirituality from Matthew 23. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all 
sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Legalism creates pride. Legalism promotes self-righteousness, and it draws us away from God by creating a counterfeit spirituality where we fool ourselves into thinking that we are in a right relationship with God. When in reality, if we had a right relationship with God, we wouldn't need a list of do's and don'ts. If you're married, do you need a list of rules on what to do for your spouse? You must cook dinner. You must prepare breakfast. You must do their laundry. You must do intercourse three times a week. You must do this. No, you don't need a list. Why? Why don't you need that list? Because you respond out of love. You do those things because you love your spouse. As a parent, do you need a list of do's and don'ts of what to do with your children? Do clothe your children. Do feed your children three meals a day. No, because you know what to do because you love them. We don't need a list of do's and don'ts with God. We do what we do because we love him, and we are grateful for what he's done for us. Well, if we don't have a list of rules, does that mean we can just do whatever we want? No. Because through Christ, we're ruled by the law of love. We're dictated in our behavior by our love and our gratitude for Christ. We have to learn to respond like Jesus. We have to first come to him. We have to know him. We have to make him Lord and Savior. Otherwise, we're just going through the motions creating shadows of what life could be, of what life could look like. As we search for the meaning of life, as we rethink life, as we understand it, what are we doing with Jesus? Is Jesus your Savior? Is Jesus Lord? Or was he a good teacher? Was he a good man in the Bible that people talk about because he did good things? Our lives are short. The Bible says our lives are but a mist in the large scheme of things. How much time are you losing today because you keep worrying about tomorrow? Or you're worrying about your past. You're, you're worried about what happened yesterday because you're still living in the guilt, in the shame of what happened yesterday. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. We weren't meant to live a life that's just a struggle day in and day out. Life as we know it is going to change. Someday there's going to be no more sickness. 
someday there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain and no more emptiness. And all of these things that we see are going to pass away. And they will be nothing compared to what's coming. What we see around us, these worries of life, we're made for something better. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first Jesus. There will be things stripped from you, things that you don't need, like your old life. But you will get new life. You will receive wholeness, fullness. The things of this world, the things that we see, physical things, material things, they're not alternatives to cover up the hurts, to cover up the unhappiness, the dissatisfaction, or the discontent that we experience. You see, eternity has been set in our hearts, and we cannot fill that with things that are not Jesus. It can only be filled with eternal things. And those eternal things happen through Jesus. Church, God sees amazement in every one of you. He sees who you were meant to be. He sees your wholeness. He sees you complete. He sees you in Jesus. Allow him to work in your life. Allow him to free you from the burdens that hold you down. Allow him to free you from the guilt and the doubt that keeps holding you back and the fear that keeps tugging you back. Look for the meaning of life in the creator of life, Jesus himself. Let yourself be filled with the majesty of his presence. That's his gift to us. Receive it. Receive him as Savior. Receive him as Lord. And there you'll find the meaning of life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for life. We thank you that you didn't leave us in the pit, that you didn't leave us in our sinful state, Father. You saw what needed to be done, and and you did it yourself. You sacrificed yourself for us. You loved us that much. Father, help us to see in ourselves what you see. 
us to see Jesus. Holy Father, as we leave this place, may we be challenged, may we be encouraged, may we learn to see you at work in our lives. May we allow ourselves to be filled up in your presence. And may we let that spill out over our lives into others. May we not keep your message to ourselves. May we not keep your love, your grace to ourselves. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.